Welcome to the Joseph Cox Show. This podcast episode is going to be quite a bit different than any podcast episode I've done before for a very simple reason, one that I'm going to explain by way of a story. So a number of years ago, a uh, historian by the name of Simon Shama wrote a book called Dead Certainties. And in this book, uh, he talked about two stories uh, and overlaid two stories. One story was about the Battle of Quebec, uh, and the other story was about the preeminent historian who studied the Battle of Quebec. He lived quite a bit later, and uh, and he died. Um, and when he died, he granted his papers, as I recall, and I'll explain why I'm recalling and not telling with certainty. Uh, with certainty. Um, when he died, he he granted his papers to the Boston Historical Society, I believe that's the organization, the Brahmin Group, and uh, under the condition that they read his diary aloud. And if they read his diary, then they could they could own his papers. It was unusual. It was a strange request. But they decided to honor the request and read his diaries. Now, he was an unusual man. One of the reasons he was unusual is that he never showed up for meetings. Nobody really knew why. They just thought he was this eccentric historian, and he lived this eccentric life, and that was that. He, he did good work. He was, he was an absolute expert in his field. And so he didn't show up for meetings. It wasn't the end of the world. So they started reading his diaries, and they realized that, in fact, they didn't understand what had happened uh, and why he was the way he was. What had happened was, was that he was a young man. He sought out adventure. He sought out adventure in America's West. I think he died in the mid-1800s, so you know, early 1800s. Um, and he you know, tried the hard life. And in the process of trying the hard life, he damaged his eyes. Uh, he damaged his eyes pretty badly. There was very little they could do at the time. Uh, and when he got back home to Boston, he could no longer be exposed to light. And so he would stay, in, he would only wake up at night. He could rarely have even a lantern uh, on in his room. And in order to do his historical work, he hired a secretary who would read to him uh, and who would write on his behalf. And when he wanted to write himself, he, he constructed this uh, easel of sorts with, uh, with copper wires going across it because he couldn't see the page in order to be able to write in straight lines. Now, the reason I bring him up is because the condition that he appears to have is probably what's called today recurrent corneal erosion. It's not a terribly unusual condition, but of course, it can get pretty bad at times to the point where you can't be exposed to light, uh, to the point where it can be extremely painful to do anything. Um, thankfully, today we have treatments, not perfect, but we have treatments that can get you past these acute episodes. In those days, I imagine he just lived an entire life of acute episodes. This is relevant because I've just had one of those acute episodes. I had a massive corneal erosion on my left eye. I've had one on my right eye before, and I was, and am currently, uh, very debilitated by this. I am sitting in a dark room. My secretary, otherwise known as my daughter Nava, has set up the app on my phone because it's very hard for me to look at my phone in order to enable me to record this podcast. 
And as I, when I, the last time I had this, the last time I had a bad attack, the pain was so bad I could not imagine the possibility of leading a useful life uh, if it were something that could not be addressed in some way. It was after I had my first surgery on my right eye. It wasn't a major surgery. It was a pretty simple one um, that uh, that I read this book, this Dead Certainties book, not because I knew it had any connection to, to RCE, to recurrent corneal erosion, just by chance. Uh, and I was reading this book and I realized that it was describing the same situation. And this man who was in such total and complete pain, who was so completely debilitated by his situation, except, of course, that he still had some money, still managed to live a very productive life in his field. He still managed to accomplish despite the situation that he was in. And I found that story very inspiring um, in and of itself. But as I sit here tonight, I've just had emergency surgery on my left eye. <laughs> the doctor did something like 20 punctures or 15 punctures on my left eye uh, to help address. And hopefully in like a day or two, I'll be in much better condition. But right now I'm not. As I sit here, I realize that perhaps one of the reasons that he was doing this work is because, well, one of the best ways to distract yourself from pain is to think uh, and so I'm giving this podcast in the, in the middle of the night with my eyes closed because I want to think um, and I want to use this for purely selfish reasons uh, in order to feel better. Uh, <laughs> and hopefully in the process, uh, you all can get something useful and can get some information about this Parsha, about uh, about what I learned from this Parsha, um, and, uh, and we'll all come out ahead. I do want a caveat, of course that I don't have notes, and I don't have the ability to open a safer. I don't have a chumash. I haven't written out my thought process uh, in a detailed way. Uh, it just isn't something that uh, that I can do right now. So if I make small mistakes or big mistakes, feel free to comment, feel free to connect. Um, in a day or two or three days, maybe, I'll be able to, uh, to review um, and respond to those things on a computer screen. Uh, but for now, I can't. And, and given, of course, the, the lack of time I'm going to have to get my regular job done this week, I do not expect to be turning this podcast uh, into a transcript. If anybody else feels like doing so, they're, of course, welcome to, to write it up, but I would think it's pretty annoying. So let's step into the Torah portion and into the Mishkan. The classic question that's asked about this second telling of the Mishkan, the one that happens after Parsha Kitisa and the Stin of the Golden Calf, is why is it here? Why are we doing the whole Mishkan again for a second time with so few changes, so little, seemingly, so few things that are fundamentally different between the two? It seems like the ultimate in repetition. Instead of giving uh, some sort of um, straightforward, short little answer, I'm going to go into a lot of detail here, at least as far as I can manage. Uh, and it'll be based around the structure of the Mishkan and the structure of how the building is intended to be uh, to be established. So as we covered a few weeks ago, when we first started talking about the Mishkan, the basic structure of the Mishkan is that Hashem wants to dwell within the people. And so Hashem's appearances before the people are represented in the articles that go into the Mishkan. The menorah is the burning bush, the sneh, it burns and it's never consumed. It's about the size, of the, the, the raw gold is about the size of a loaf of bread, um, which when you extend it and, and, and machine, and not machine it, and craft it, can be about as large as a, as a goodly sized bush. Um, and so it represents the, the, the the burning bush. Uh, the second item that's in the uh, in the list is the shulchan. The shulchan is the table, 
or Evelachem Panim, Hashem shows that He redeemed us from Israel. He says He's going to show us that He redeemed us from Israel by virtue of giving us Lachem, by virtue of giving us the manna, the man. Uh, and so the, the Lachem Panim in this table is a representation of Hashem's uh, gift of the man to us, combined with the elders going before Hashem and eating a meal at His table. Uh, and the third one is the uh, is the is the is the Aaron Kodesh, the, the, not the Aaron Kodesh, is the Aaron. The Aaron is the holy ark, um, and within it are the uh, Luchot, are the Ten Commandments, and this, of course, represents the giving of the Torah. If you're curious about the details of these items, the the dimensions that they have, the descriptions, the materials, I went into all of that uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, and you're absolutely welcome, of course, to go back and listen. This week, I'm going to focus on the other side of things. Hashem wants as well within the people. So if Hashem has these representations, how would we deal within them? Well, the answer is, is that the buildings and the structures that they're placed within would represent the idealized people. And Hashem describes us the idealized people before the giving of the Torah. He describes us as a mamlachet koanim and a goy kadosh. A mamlachet koanim is a kingdom of priests. Priests are people who interface between God and man, between the spiritual and the uh, and the secular world. Uh, and uh, and a kingdom is something that has rules, that has establishments, that has structure. Um, this is the method by which uh, a place is governed. The second uh, description is a goy kadosh. Goy is a word that is, is much more formless. Uh, even today, of course, after thousands of years, we still argue about how you define a Jew. You know, uh, you can have ethnic, you can have social, you can have cultural, you can have religious, you can have all these sorts of definitions because actually, in reality, it's not so clear where you draw those lines. A goy is something that is much less formed than a mamlechet. In a mamlechet, you have a clear line, you have a rule. This is what a Jew is, this is what a Jew isn't. But a goy doesn't work that way. A goy is unclear. A goy kadosh is a goy that has this kadosh aspect, this connection to timelessness. And so the, the, basic, uh, the basic idea is you want to have a building that represents these two realities. So how do you do this? Well, in Parshat Mishpatim, the people have 53 laws, 53 situations that they have to enforce. They're socially enforced by man, not by God. And there are 56 possible outcomes for those situations. And so what we see in order to represent this mamlechet aspect is that the internal structure of the Mishkan, the, the smaller tabernacle building, uh, has 53 columns. Those represent the things that we have to uh, we have to react to, the situations we have to react to. And the chatzer, the courtyard of the Mishkan, the outer building, has 56 columns. So what we see in these pillars in these, uh, is a representation of the mamlechet kohanim. The second aspect is the curtains. The curtains that go over the inner Mishkan are inherently, by themselves, formless, without having a structure to hold them up, without having a Mamlachet Kohanim. So the curtains of the Goy, what do they have on them? They have Kruvim, they have angels that are close to God. They have things that are touched the timeless in a way. They are uh, Kadosh. And so what you end up with is, between the curtains and the pillars, a representation of Mamlachet Kohanim, the Goy Kadosh, a representation of the people. 
this is a very practical physical representation. I want to go into a little bit more detail, and uh, I apologize in advance if I get uh, specifics wrong. Um, it's kind of hard for me to check um, the, the details at this point in time. Um, but I think that I'll get it mostly right, and, and the descriptions and the structures should be able to, to, to match up pretty well with what's going on. So the inner tabernacle, the inner Mishkan, has three layers of... Um, three layers of covering. The first layer is a series of curtains. There are 10 of these curtains. They are 28 by 4. So, interestingly, of course, they're 28. Uh, 28 is half of 56. There are 10 of these curtains, uh, and there's the Ten Commandments, and then there's the four commandments that come after the Ten Commandments that describe the basic way in which we're supposed to relate to God, the way in which we go up a ramp, the way in which we build a mishkan, though we can't have a sword on it, we have to make it out of earth. Um, these are the commandments that uh, that establish the basic relationship, the basic way in which we approach the holy. And so for me, these initial these initial curtains, these initial coverings represent the, the, the basis of a holy law, um, um, not the Mamlachet Koranim highly structured. It's 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 got this this goy aspect to it. But even so, uh, the, the goy kadosh and Mamlachet Koranim are not totally divorced. You're wrapping this building up in these uh, in this in this this soft but holy uh, aspect, uh, basically. So. Let's go on a little bit further. The the there are, uh, as I mentioned, ten of these curtains, which I think represents the Ten Commandments. Uh, and then the next level you have up on top of this is you have goat skin coverings, and goat skin is meant to be something that is protective of the building. Right? This is not something that's that's so decorative. It's something that's meant to protect the building. There are eleven of these skins. Uh, I cannot remember the dimensions. I apologize, um, but there are eleven of these goat skins, five and six, uh, and one of them drapes in front. Why would there be 11? I believe the reason is because the, the Mishkan is, is, represents the Mishkan being protected by the tribes of Israel. But of course, the Levim, in a way, work within the Mishkan. The Levim are part of the Mishkan. And so the tribes of Israel are the other 11 tribes, with the tribe in front being the tribe of Yehuda, um, the one of prominence, uh, providing the, the, the front and the face of the Mishkan. And so you have, uh, you have this inner layer of, of, of law and Kadosh and Goy Kadosh with the inner, the inner coverings. And then the next covering is, is the people protecting this relationship. And then the top covering is the, uh, is the Tachash, this, this hide that, that, uh, if you look at, uh, Mafarshim, they describe it as a unicorn hide, or some people say it was an animal that's extinct now that used to exist in those days whenever you encounter something whenever i encounter something like this in the Chumash, i always think of it being intentionally um intentionally odd intentionally hard to understand uh and so i think of this as something that is holy something that is mysterious something that is godly and and a reminder that although we might establish the goat skin to protect this kind of building in reality ultimately it is protected by Akash Baruch um, and, and he provides the outer layer of protection in his own mysterious way. Or in the case of the Mishkan, it's really her. The Shekhinah is a, fe- is a feminine word. And so what you end up with is 
these curtains, of course, surrounding it. And the pillars themselves also have a lot of the details that represent the Mamlachi Kohanim side of things. So the pillars are made out of sheetim wood. Sheetim is uh, translated as acacia. Um, the sheetim wood, uh, the word literally means to bear a grudge. It represents our humanity, our limited humanity, but it's wrapped in gold. Uh, and the gold represents a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And so our limited humanity is wrapped in a Kaddish Baruch Hu by these laws. Right? It's a, it's a beautiful representation. And then at the base of these pillars, we have these silver uh, silver feet, silver pedestals uh, that, that, that establish them. And the silver in the Chumash, especially the Shekel HaKodesh, represents the reflection of the divine. So when Hashem, later on in Bamidbar, when he wants to command us to go someplace, right, we blow through silver trumpets. These, these, these silver trumpets say we're reflecting the voice of God by virtue of using silver as the representation of this reflection, whereas gold is Hashem. I like to think of it almost as the sun and the moon, right? The sun is the gold color, the moon is the silver, and one is the reflection of the other. Uh, and so the, these laws have a basis of our uh, holy uh, reflection of a Kadesh Baruch Hu. That's the way in which they are established, which they are brought together. And then they have copper, of course, which is utilitarian, holding everything together. Um, and in addition, you have on each of the sides, you have five bars of acacia wood colored, covered in gold. Um, and uh, going back again to the symbolism of the Yad, the symbolism of the hand, uh, as the hand of action, I believe that these five bars on each of these sides represent the fact that uh, that's human action that is forming these laws. These are the laws that we enforce. Uh, and so this building, uh, is, is, is these, these pillars represent human action. Each of the pillars is an ama and a half um, long, uh, wide. Um, and I think that the reason that they are this size is because an ama represents one human action. But in order to have a system of laws, a society of laws, a society of this sort of structure, you have to go beyond the individual. And so an ama and a half represents the idea that you're going beyond one individual. And all these, all these pillars are ultimately linked at the top with, uh, uh, at the bottom they're linked, of course, with the silver and with the copper with very practical means. But at the top, they're linked with uh, gold rings. Uh, so they're brought together, at the, when you look heavenwards, they're brought together by Kadosh Baruch Hu, um, but at the base they're brought together by very practical, very practical means. And so this is, for me, a beautiful representation of the Mamachi Kohanim of the Goy Kadosh in the inner courtyard. The outer courtyard continues with the theme, but in a different way. And it goes back again to the materials that are used. Uh, and uh, these are really fascinating, it, it fascinating to me, the, the different ways in which materials and substances are used in the Torah. So when we look at different sorts of substances in the Torah, there are substances that that represent HaKadosh Baruch Hu and his gifts to us. And there are things that represent different aspects of what we can do and what we can bring to the table. So an example of something that he brings to us, of course, is fruit, right? Hashem gives us all the fruits in the Garden of Eden, right? So when we, we can't bring fruit for, normally, we can't bring fruit for offerings because to do so would be to say, hey, Hashem, here's the fruit you gave us. You know, it doesn't represent our contribution. It represents his contribution, which is why on Shavuot, when we're giving a sacrifice that represents a Kaddish Baruch Hu's contribution to us, we bring fruit. Likewise, we have uh, the, 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 the gift of, um, of, of bread, right? We can't bring bread in the Mishkan. Uh, we can't bring leavened bread because that final stage of leavening, that final stage of bringing the bread to rise represents Hashem's contribution. But all the work that comes up beforehand for the, the planting, the harvesting, uh, yes, of course, Hashem has a hand in enabling that to happen, but the planting, the harvesting, and especially the grinding of grain into flour uh, represents an enormous 
amount of human effort. We forget because we buy flour in a bag. We forget how much work it is. But just to give an example, this is something I learned when I was writing my book about uh, about Iraq and about the, um, uh, the the idea I had for a better way to deal with the kind of conflicts we have in our neighborhood. Um, but uh, when I was writing that book, um, I learned that the uh, in Iraq, the national government takes in people's uh, wheat it takes in their their grain and it grinds it and it provides it back to people at a very cheap price. The the price of the grinding is very low cost. And the reason for this is because it's an, an enormous industrial activity, an enormous amount of work, and people uh, are actually linked and connected to the national government on some level by virtue of being able to use this national government service. So this national government service is one of the ways in which Saddam um, and people after Saddam uh, managed to hold the country together a little bit more um, because there was so much work involved in turning grain into flour. And if you could provide that in an industrial scale, you could make people have a financial connection uh, and a financial dependency on the central government as a result. So that's, that's grain. That's all very well and good. But of course, you can't make fabric out of grain. So in the ancient world, and actually very much until the modern world, I can't remember the exact dates, but I believe that the first synthetic fabrics that were used were developed in the, uh, they were developed maybe in the 20s, but they first became um, uh, commercially available just before World War II for a very brief period of time with nylon um, and nylons. Um, and then uh, after World War II, they became, uh, when the end of rationing, they became very, very popular. Uh, there are people in New York who lined up, you know, around city blocks to get nylons. Those are the earliest, and I think Rayan was as well, the earliest synthetic fabrics. They didn't come along for a very long time. Before that, you had natural fabrics. Natural fabrics are cotton. You had wool. Uh, you had uh, silk, of course, uh, which is rare. Um, and, and you had linen. Linen was a very, very common uh, fabric. And if you were to pick one of these fabrics and say that this is the fabric that is like grain, that is like ground flour, then it would be linen. Because linen is planted in the ground as flax, you grow it up and you have to harvest it and then you go through a very labor-intensive process of purifying the linen so that it can be worn nicely. And then you have, um, when they talk about the, uh, when they talk about the, the, uh, skin disease, sarat, uh, it strikes people who have, uh, who have, it describes their clothes as being of low quality, you know, flax, of raw flax. Um, and uh, it uses the same word as used in the Ten Plagues to describe the flax being struck in the field. This is the, the, the people who, who, who get hit this way are the lowest quality people, right? It's, it's kind of a suggestion of those lines. But the, the fabric at the other end, the very highest quality of the linen fabric is called shesh masar. It's this finely woven fabric where you've done all of this processing work to purify it and to make it work as best as possible in order to have a, a fine and beautiful linen fabric. It's the sheish mazar that is used to link the outer pillars of the courtyard. It's used to create this wall and the reason it's used is because it takes a tremendous amount of human effort in order to create a society in which laws are enforced. Um, and we represent that human effort through the use of the sheish mazar on these pillars. So let's go on a little bit more. Um, we've covered the basic structure. We've covered, uh, I want to talk about the dimensions of the building a little bit, uh, a little bit more. And then I want to go back and cover the overall structure uh, and the process by which we get to it and why we repeat everything twice. Uh, 
So, so the overall dimensions of the building, um, you end up with the, uh, the, the Torah makes it explicit. The, the outer chatzer is divided into two. You have half of it is for, I mean, it doesn't say this, but it's implied. You have half of it is used for human activity. This is where the Mizbeach is. This is where we reach out to God. And half of it is used to represent divine activity. This is where the inner Mishkan is. Uh, this is where the articles of Kodesh Baruch Hu are. Um, and it's a much more static place in a lot of ways. We're not offering up animals. Instead, we're maintaining the timeless traditions. The menorah is always burning. The Aron Kodesh is always on the inside. There's always bread on the table, right? You, you, this is this is a place beyond time, whereas the Mizbeach is a place where we, we bring time. Uh, we, we, we merge the secular. We merge the, the profane and the holy uh, in order to raise up the profane, in order to raise up our our limited world. Uh, the inner building is is up against the side of this halfway division. I believe it represents Hashem's desire to be closer, um, to, 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 to interface with our uh, limited and time-bound world. Uh, and then on the outside, it has uh, 20 um, amot on each... As, um, uh, 20 amot on each edge uh, is equally placed from each distance and I think this is basically a representation that uh, the, the, the distance between um, the, the the situations that you have to enforce and actually having them enforced is is equal um, no matter which direction, no matter what kind of law no matter what kind of situation you're, you're faced with uh, and in addition with the pillars each being one and a half meter one and a half amot, it ends up being something that, uh, that comes out uh, pretty evenly uh, and it's a pretty consistent sign. When the um, building is described, when the layout is described, it's described uh, by facing east, west, north, and south. Um, and the directions are a little interesting. Uh, the building faces towards Yam, um, but it doesn't come from either Kadima or Mizrach. It comes from Kadima Mizrach or Mizrach Kadima. Mizrach Kadima. Uh, it uses both terms. And if you look at Mezrach, uh, Mizrach as, as a word, it implies a sense of belonging, a sense of citizenship, a sense of where you've come from. Uh, and Kadima is, comes that represents what's earlier, what, what came before. Um, but the word Yam is connected, of course, to water, um, which is this idea of spirituality. And so when you when you walk into the Mishkan, you're you're progressing from a, from where you come from, from Mezrach and from Kadima, and you're going towards the spiritual. And so that's why the the building is oriented along these uh, cartographic um, cartographic lines. Uh, and so you end up with this uh, with this concept of spiritual progression and progression from the past towards the future, progression from what is is time-bound and limited to what is ultimately timeless and holy uh, in, in the organization of the building. So I think I've covered what I can as far as the structure of the building. Let's talk now about the structure of the Parshiot and why we go into this again and see if we can answer that question, that core question that people always have. So before... The, the, the most prominent distinction we have between the two tellings um, in terms is it comes in the order in which things are brought up. And the most prominent deviation in that order is the golden Mizbech. The golden Mizbech, it's, it's also made out of shittim wood, um, and it is covered with, uh, with gold. Uh, and on it is burnt incense. Um, now, the incense basically says you have to buy this stuff because you do. It's another quick aside because, you know, I don't have notes, so I can do whatever I feel like. Um, the the incense altar, the incense that they would burn, <clears throat> you have various and sundry substances. The two most prominent of the substances are, um, are myrrh and frankincense. 
These are both uh, fascinating things. They're both uh, derived from the the, um, the sap of trees in Yemen and in Ethiopia. Uh, and they were things that were traded internationally and have been traded internationally for a very, very long time. Uh, currently, there's actually a kind of a crisis in the frankincense industry um, because they've been over-harvesting. Uh, I believe frankincense is used even today in mosques uh, quite a bit, but it's also used in other parts of the world. And you can get it from Yemen, but it's always from wild trees. And so in the situation they have now, of course, the terrible war and the other situations like that, people are willing to push um, the crop beyond necessarily what it can take. So there's a Chiloni, a secular farmer who lives in the settlements in the West Bank in the Shtachim, who's actually cultivating for the first time frankincense in order to try and provide a source that can be stable uh, in the, you know, rather than something that is entirely wild and and threatened by over-harvesting. So it's it's very fun. But these are things that people had to buy. Um, And the reason that incense is important, and it's important not just, of course, in Judaism, but we actually almost never use it anymore. Um, we don't use it, um, but it was critically important. And in Hinduism, in, 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 in almost every religion, you have this uh, use of, of incense as a key factor in your worship and in your method of, of acquiring a state of holiness. And for me, the reason that this incense is so important is because nothing connects to emotions more strongly than smell. Um, thank God I haven't lost my smell uh, to the corona. Obviously, a lot of people have, and I th- you've, we've seen a lot of descriptions of how offsetting, how off-putting it is to lose the sense of smell, even in the short term. But in the long term, it's even deeper. If you get a certain smell walking along a winter's day, it can take you back 40 years to your childhood someplace else. It, it touches the soul in such a fundamental and a very strong way. Well, in the first telling of the Mishkan, the golden altar, the altar in which this can all occur, only comes at the very end, right? Hashem describes to us how to build the Mishkan, how to put everything together, all this kinds of stuff. And only at the very end do we have space for this idea of this pure emotional connection. And it's not clear that we're offering up the incense to Hashem, or Hashem is offering the incense to us. It's an altar that's on the side of the inner Mishkan. It's on Hashem's side. We burn the incense before Hashem, but it's burned on something that represents the amalgamation of the human and the divine. Uh, and I think that what you're seeing is is that this 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 incense represents the emotional connection for both parties between God. And man, and it actually the incense burning is described as creating the actual meeting place between God and man. But it's this emotional meeting place. But you're only able to get to it after you've done all the other work, after you've got everything else defined, after you've got everything else achieved and locked down. On the second reading, this golden altar comes in much much earlier. And I think it's a key for us and a key in which we can establish the rest of the differences between these two things. Because in the second telling, it's not that everything is locked down and perfectly done. That's not what's important. It's not that we only allow our emotions at the very end of the process to play a role. In the second reading, it's critical for us to allow our emotions to play a part in the beginning. The second Mishkan is the emotional Mishkan representing our emotions, not Hashem's commands, but our desire to be close to Hashem. So let me go back a little bit and you'll see how this plays out in a variety of fun ways. So I mentioned before during Parsha Kitisa that the, um, that the, uh, 
The silver half shekel is anonymous. And right afterwards, and perhaps because we spend the money from the silver half shekel on these things, we have the purchase of the incense. We have the purchase of the, of the, of the copper, the bronze, um, washing stations where the Kohanim can, can rid themselves of any sort of individualism that might taint their service to a Baruch Hu. You have this anonymity being baked into, this procedural anonymity being baked into the Mishkan. Well, that's not at all the telling of the second Mishkan. In the telling of the second Mishkan, we actually, instead of bringing up this, the uh, the laver, the, the the washing stations at the very end, I believe we bring them up in Parsha Kitisa before we even get to the building of the Mishkan. And the second time around, these washing stations are made out of the mirrors of the women of the people. And if the people sinned by worshiping themselves, which I believe they did, then this is an emotional desire to say, you know what, we're going to cast aside this self-admiration, and we're going to use it, and we want the Kohanim to wash themselves in a state of, of, of separating from self-admiration. In a state of focusing on a Kaddish Baruch Hu, instead of focusing on ourselves. And to me, this is just a, a, a wonderful image of the, uh, of the emotional change that goes on between the two Mishkans. And if you read the text, it makes it incredibly obvious. In the first time, it says, everybody who wants should bring for the Mishkan. But in the second telling, it tells us again and again that everybody who had what was needed for the Mishkan wanted to bring it. Everybody had this motivation, this noble heart, this desire to have a connection to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And so, you, and, and so when they build the second Mishkan, the first Mishkan starts with the articles. It starts with the representation of Hashem, and it goes on to the structure of the building afterwards. But the second telling starts with the, the structure. It starts with the people saying, hey, we're going to put ourselves here, and then we're going to put Hashem in the middle. We're going to establish the pillars and the, and the curtains. We're going to build the presence of the people, and then we'll put the articles in afterwards. Because we're taking the first step. And we see more of this idea of taking the first step when we look at the, uh, at the way in which Moshe asks the people to build. He says to the people, you have to keep Shabbos because you can't have fire in your, uh, in your homes on Shabbat. Very odd thing to say. And the reason, and because it's so odd, that's where we derive the idea of the 39 malachot, the, the, the 39 commandments that we have to keep on Shabbat. Um, but there's other ways, of course, of interpreting that and other ways of, of looking at it and, and learning from it. Um, and then, and then Moshe says to them that, uh, that, uh, they can't have fire, of course, in their homes on Shabbat and they should build the Mishkan. And then they go off and do it themselves. Instead of motion micromanaging the project, the people take it upon themselves to build the Mishkan themselves. They take the effort upon themselves. And it even says they do too much work, which is a concept we'll get to in a little bit. I actually want to talk about a, a fun story um, uh, uh, related, to, related to that commandment, not to have fire on Shabbat. So a couple of years ago, um, uh, a little over two years ago, uh, I was visiting my mother. Um, I wanted to be with her for Shabbat in the hospital. This was not long before she died. And uh, and I needed to stay for Shabbat. I needed to stay. And the only place to stay in the area was at a hotel that was set up specifically for patients right across the street from the uh, from the hospital. So I walk into the, hotel, the little hotel. It's really a motel. I walk into the motel and I say, listen, I'm... Uh, I have an unusual request because this is, you know, in eastern Portland, it's not a place with a lot of Jews, uh, certainly not a lot of religious Jews. So I said, listen, I have an unusual request. Um, I'd like to stay here for the Sabbath, but I need you to be able to do a few things for me so I can. And the lady says, oh, you're Jewish. I said, yes, yes, I'm Jewish. She goes, ah, we know exactly what to do. 
And she proceeded to describe that two years earlier, this woman had stayed for Shabbat, and she'd laid out all these things that she had to have done in order to stay in the hotel for Shabbat. Um, and she remembered this situation so well because it was so very distinct what the woman asked for. So what did this woman ask for that was so distinct? All I wanted was for them to open the door for me, right? And to hold the key so I didn't have to carry it across the street. That's pretty much the limits of what I wanted. But this woman had other ideas. What she wanted was tape on the VCR. All the light bulbs taken out. Um, <laughs> what was she doing? Well, she was a Karaite. And so she was reading this text literally and saying, you cannot have fire. You cannot have any sort of artificial light in your home on Shabbat. And so she had to have all the sources of artificial light as a primary command removed from her hotel room in order to stay there for Shabbat. So I thought that was a, a, a fun story. But it also emphasizes this idea of fire, is this idea of spiritual energy. And what Moshe is telling the people is you don't have a source of spiritual energy on Shabbat without having the Mishkan. If you want to have this emotional connection to Hashem, you have to build it yourself. So they do. They build it themselves, and they establish the Mishkan as an emotional project, as their investment in God, not just something that God commands them to build. And so that's why, even though the building is so similar between the two tellings, that's why the second Mishkan is, has fundamentally different bones. It's the same symbolic representation but the bones are not Hashem commanding us. The bones are our desire to reach out to God. So there's a few other concepts I want to touch on before I wrap up this, this podcast. Uh, and one of those concepts is the concept of, uh, uh, is the concept of too much work. Uh, in the Torah, there is a distinction made, and I brought it up before, a distinction consistently made between Tov and Kadosh. The two do not intersect. They never never show up in the same pasuk, for example. Tov represents good, but it represents a judgment of work and of creation that has been done. Kadosh is not about work. Kadosh is about timeless and the unchanging reality. Now, of course, we invest what is Tov. We dedicate what is Tov in order to create Kadosh. Right? We have a, a process and a panel and a, and a cycle of Kadusha that we follow. Um, <clears throat> but the, but that... The, those two aspects are, 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 are bipolar, not bipolar. They're, 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 they're two different um, goods, two different things that we're pursuing. We don't have one thing that we're pursuing. Uh, we have multiple things that we have to balance in our lives through cycles and through other sorts of means. The only time in which those two concepts come close to each other is in the Mishkan. The Mishkan has the phrase in, in various and sundry ways. I can't remember exactly what the wording is. Malacha um, Kedusha, holy work. Malacha is never associated with holiness anyplace else uh, in the Chumash, but in, in twice it's associated with holiness here. Uh, and the idea of Malacha Kedusha is this idea that you're actually doing work which ends up being timeless. But of course, if there's too much work, then the effort shifts from the creation of something timeless to being a situation in which you're emphasizing the work itself. And that can actually rob you of the pleasure, of the joy, of the timelessness of the situation. It's almost like cleaning too much for Pesach. If you take it too far, if you're too too machmir, then it all becomes about the labor and you begin to lose the point of the holiness that's involved. That is, by the way, not any sort of official recommendation. Go ahead and clean for Pesach however you normally would. So, so what you end up with is this 
concept of Mamacha Kirusha and this place that we're able to build for Hashem. Uh, and, and it's to me a beautiful opportunity to, to merge two fundamental concepts in Torah, and we can only do it in this one very special place. Uh, along the lines of other small notes about the Parsha, we have Betzalel, of course, who is the craftsman who makes it, and he has an assistant whose name I can't remember. Um, but the difference between the two the two men is that Betzalel can work in stone. Uh, and stone is used in very few cases in the Mishkan. It's used, of course, in the Luchot, which, which uh, Moshe carves. Um, but it's also used for the stones that represent the people on the on the Choshen Mishpat on the breastplate of judgment. And it's used for the stones that represent the people on the shoulders of Aaron, the Kohen. And these stones represent the people in a timeless aspect. But stone is so timeless um, that it, it comes with great risks. It can be misused and misrepresented. Uh, the... the um, Example I, I like to use is later on in Parsh Midbar again when we're talking about Sakat, about this disease of conceit, it strikes stone houses. Because those people who live in stone houses imagine themselves to be beyond and greater than their own time. They imagine themselves in some way to be timeless. Because look, they have this stone house, not some mud thing that's going to fall down after a few years, whatever happens to be. Um, they have a real, a real permanent home. And so when you work with stone, there's always a risk that you can... You can idolatrize it, right? You can make it into a god. And people, of course, do. They make stone gods all the time. So it's very important for B'Tzalel to be able to work with stone. It's, it's He alone is able to do that. He alone is able to capture Kedusha in stone. It's not something that can be done even by his very high-ranking and very successful, I would presume, assistant. One other thing that stands out um, when you look at the Big Day Kohanim, the close of the Kohanim, as we described a few weeks ago, the Big Day Kohanim have, have three functions. One function is to, uh, is to the, with Me'il, with the pure, the pure robe of blue with the, with the golden bells at the bottom and the pomegranates, the fruits, and, and the ability to listen at the bottom. Uh, the Me'il, and it's not torn, represents purity. And it represents a Kaddish Baruch Hu coming before the people. So that's the first job of the Kohan, to bring God before the people. The second job of the Kohan is to bring the people before God, which he does with, with the Choshen Mishpat with, uh, with the breastplate of, of judgment. Uh, he has the people carried before God. And the third thing is, is that he's limited by the relationship. He carries the weight of the relationship on his shoulders in the stones of the ephod. And of course, he loses a lot of his individuality in the, uh, in the hat um, and, the, and the uniform aspect of things. The cone is somebody who's not meant to stand out. He's not meant to be distinct. Uh, he's not meant to be king, which is, of course, something that comes up quite a bit later in Jewish history is a problem. The cone is meant to be somebody who is... Uh, who was uh, an interface between God and man, not the focus himself. And so when you have uh, the situation, when you look at the big dekoanim, between the two situations, uh, before Kitisa and afterwards, they are almost identical. I'm not uh, an expert in every line of possible distinction, but as I recall reading it, there's only one place where there's a difference between the two. And that one place is in the description of how the gold thread is used between the two situations. In the first case, it simply says you take gold thread and you use it when you when you need gold thread in the garments. Uh, in the second situation, it says you take uh, you take gold, you pound it into sheets, and then you cut it into strips, and that's how you get your gold thread. Why would we be emphasizing the process differently? It seems like it's basically the same thread in the second case and in the first case. And I think the reason is because, of course, gold represents the divine. And in the first case, you imagine this thread as a three-dimensional thing. 
right? A thread is round. You, 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 you. It may be thin and, and whatever, but it's it's round. It's got it's got all the dimensions of life to it uh, in this respect. And so the Kohen, when they're wearing the gold thread in their in their garments, they have the fullness of divinity being represented in that way. But when you take that gold thread and you pound it flat and then you cut it into strips, you're taking it from three dimensions to two dimensions to one dimension. And the reason you're doing this is because you're actually saying that the Kohen, because of the fact that they serve the people, Aaron, serve the people by making the golden calf. He didn't take his instructions from the right side of this interface. He took it from the people side of the interface and he misused it and he ended up perverting it. He's downgraded. He doesn't get to carry in his threads the fullness of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. He gets to carry just one dimension of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Um, and so it's this little demotion that goes on between these two tellings. So going back, we have again this concept, overall concept. The first Mishkan is one of commandment. The first Mishkan is one of order. The first Mishkan is one of Hashem laying down how things are supposed to be laid out. The second Mishkan, the one that is built by the people, is one of our own, in many ways, our own initiation. It's our desire to be close to Hashem. Uh, it's an emotional Mishkan. It's, it's this desire for a connection with God um, that, uh, that establishes the framework of how it is built. And so it's, to me, the two tellings, although they are so similar, are actually so very different. Uh, and they each provide their own value and benefit uh, in understanding the relationship we can have with God and the way in which that relationship changes, the way in which after the sin of the calf and the mistakes we make and the change of the relationship I talked about last week, the way in which we have to change our game, raise our game in some ways, but change our game to reflect the new reality that we exist in. Last couple of weeks, I've been mentioning that there's a project I'm working on that um, that might take me away from this podcasting. I've had a few people who I suggested it would take me away, but I think I might have worked out ways in which to balance the work um, sufficiently to maybe continue these podcasts. So I'm not sure, uh, but I've had a lot of uh, not a lot. I've had some because I don't have that many listeners. I've had some feedback from people suggesting that actually that would be. Uh, unfortunate um, to have this podcast and I'm going to try and continue doing it but the project itself is very interesting to me uh, and I think it's very important and I think it has some very broad implications and it is of course not of course but it is connected back to this idea of, of Tov Kadosh um, and it, it's a very fun project and if you are interested in learning more it is definitely the kind of thing um, that could use uh, a lot of spread a lot of support a lot of interface from other people from all walks of life uh, Typically, when I do something like this podcast, like one of my books, like the other activities that I get involved with, I get five or ten people to read, and you know they like what I do, or maybe not. They don't say anything, uh, but uh, but you know, five or ten people say, you know, that was really good, or whatever happens to be. And then I move on. Um, in the case of the City in the Heights, my most popular book. <clears throat> I sold maybe 150 copies. These are not situations in which I build things that have uh, a lot of spread in, in, in that sense. Um, this project that I'm working on now is meant to be quite a bit different. It's meant to be something that people will find very rewarding uh, to participate in and to share and to grow. And so if you would like to learn more, you'd like to be involved in an early stage on it, um, please please do reach out to me and let me know. Um, this is definitely something that, that requires me to rely on my weakness, which is not thinking about things, but uh, but talking to people, getting out there uh, and having things uh, interfaced and grown and, and built on, on relationships, uh, ultimately. So please do reach out to me. 
Uh, with that, regrettably, I'm going to have to stop thinking. <laughs> Maybe I'll take another whack at going to sleep. Um, but uh, I want to thank you all very much for listening to this week's podcast. Thank you for uh, for dealing with the uh, with the um, uncertainties and the ums that I don't normally have in a podcast. And uh, have a wonderful, wonderful Shabbat. And thank you so much for listening um, and for supporting uh, what I'm working on. Shabbat Shalom.